Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening and subscribing to Behind the Screen. I am your host, JT Kane. I'm here with uh, our producer and my good friend, Matt Corey, and we're here to talk about auditions, uh, specifically orchestra auditions, which, as you know, take place behind a screen, hence the name, very clever name, I might say, Behind the Screen. If you look it up, there's actually a whole bunch of Behind the Screens. I don't know if you've ever done that, like for... For, for acting and stuff. Anyway, we're here to talk about auditions. We hope that our discussions and our guests will be a resource and an inspiration for anyone who is uh, currently taking auditions or just interested in the audition process. Did you um, freshly shave your head for the occasion? No, man. I, I It's been a, almost a couple weeks. Oh. Does it look freshly shaved? It looks you, freshly you shaved. I did mine because I knew I was going to see you on camera, so I did mine fresh <laughs> like an hour I ago. I, I'm sorry. I don't even know if I showered today. Oh. Yeah. You want me to edit that out or? <laughs> no, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not going Maybe. to. <laughs> uh, this podcast is brought to you by Insight for the Blind, a special recording studio based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where over 100 volunteers produce talking books and magazines for the blind and physically handicapped so that all may read. See for yourself at insightfortheblind.org. Excellent. Thank you so much to Insight for the Blind. Thank you, Matt, for being their fearless leader. You do a wonderful job. I've actually heard from from the folks that work there. Is that right? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to uh, thank everybody for listening, and I want to thank our, our, our guest today, um, the uh, trombone player of the Metropolitan Opera and the dean of the preparatory division at Juilliard, Weston Sprott. Weston, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Let's talk. Yeah, let's talk. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about auditions. Like, I am actually kind of curious. So how many auditions have you actually taken in your life, do you think? It depends on how you're framing that. Are you talking about, like, um, auditions for full-time orchestral positions? Yes, let's start there. <laughs> I would put it at probably... 10. And out of those 10, how many, how, how many uh, did you take before you landed your, your first gig? What was your first gig? Um, well, my, my first gig was, was Pennsylvania Ballet. Actually, it was during my last year at Curtis. Okay. Um, actually, back up, sorry, Delaware Symphony. I, I should know this, but they, they kind of <laughs> happened somewhat, yeah. somewhat around the same time. So uh, basically... Around the end of my second year and the beginning of my third year at Curtis, I won positions with the Delaware Symphony as principal trombone and as principal trombonist of the Pennsylvania Ballet, which is the ballet company in Philadelphia. They play at the Academy of Music where the Philadelphia Orchestra used to play back in the day. Yeah. Like all those recordings with Eugene Ormandy were in the Academy of Music. So that's their home. Uh, so those are regional orchestras uh, yeah. that, that I won positions with while I was still a student at Curtis. And... In the meantime, I was also taking auditions for more full-time work. Mm -hmm. um, and I auditioned. My first audition for a, a real full-time job was Cincinnati Symphony. It was the uh, second slash associate principal Tremont audition. I believe that was September 2003. Um, and then I took a couple of auditions for the Seattle Symphony principal Tremont position. They ended up having that same audition twice. And then oh, yeah. the fourth one that I took for one of these full-time positions was, uh, was the Met. So wait, so in Seattle, was there, so they did it twice because, did they do something like a no hire or? 
No, what actually happened there was the person who won the position the first time ended up declining it. I oh, stayed, no. in, stayed in his current orchestra uh-huh. and then they ran, they ran the audition back probably 10 months later or something like oh, that. Oh gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. so what happens like, I don't, I mean, I don't know how it's at the Met, but I know some orchestras that like if you, they, if they don't name a runner up, then yeah, they've got to go for CBA. They got to go all over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is really costly. I would imagine for the orchestra. It's costly for the players. Costly for the player too. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's right. Like, yeah, I mean because you know the players have to incur all these costs of of traveling and paying for hotels yeah. and all those stuff or whatever. So you exactly. know, especially as a student, the cost at the time I was a student in Philadelphia. Everything. Oh, now I have to fly all the way back all the way across back. the country <laughs> uh, and spend three nights there and pay for a hotel all over again. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the orchestra's got to incur a cost, but I mean, the, the cost yeah, I mean, sure. in this situation is on the burden is on the, the players. Exactly. So, so that brings me that brings me to the to the Met. So, my understanding is that you guys you have to hire somebody. Is that or am I being too simple about that? Mm, you're about right. Yeah. You're about right. I mean, there's there's the smallest of loopholes in there, but basically, the Met audition system is set up to have a hire at every audition. Um, and that's built into the language that we have in our CBA for auditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the Met is, has been known for a long time as being one of the handful of orchestras and they're becoming more and more, but one of the handful of orchestras that does every single round behind the screen and yes. selects the winner anonymously, uh, which I think is the best system that we have. Um, I think all the systems are imperfect, yep. but given a choice of imperfect systems, that's the one in my yeah. opinion. But the way we do it is in the first round, the the judges are asked the question, do you think this person should be considered for the position? And you can vote for as many people as you would like. Okay. Uh, and then that person or the candidates only have to get at least half of the votes. So usually that committee is something like six people because uh-huh. most of the time that opening round is just people who are in the relevant section or maybe the adjacent section or something, you know? Uh, so actually the bar is intended to move people forward. Like, is this person worthy of consideration? Choose as many people as you want. If they just get half great. Then in the semifinal round, uh, the question is, do you think this person is one of the best candidates for the job? Choose as many as you would like again. Right. And once again, they only have to get, at least half of the votes. There's no like point system or is there, is there a discussion about a candidate or anything like that? No. So I'll, I'll explain that. So the semifinals vote for as many people as you want, considering is this one of the best candidates? Uh-huh. So you're not answering the question. Is this, is it, should this person be hired? Is this the best person? Just, are they one of the best candidates? That's not best candidates by comparison to the whole world. That's best candidates by comparison to the people you're, you're here. Are they right. one of the best candidates, right? Yep. And then in the final round, the question is, pick the best candidate for the job. Mm-hmm. You know, and then whoever gets the most votes wins. Uh, so if there was ever a loophole, it would be in that semifinal round when it says, is this person one of the best candidates? And you really don't pick anyone. So if no one actually gets past that round, you don't have a mechanism by which to hire. But assuming that any person in the semifinal round has a majority of people saying they're one of the best candidates, then that position is basically going to hire. Now, to answer your question about about discussion, we we have a rule of no discussion amongst the committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we will do is we will allow discussion before people play, before a round starts. 
So, but that discussion can only be about about the excerpts themselves. Okay. Not about not about an individual player or yeah. a particular playing style that we're looking for. So, as an example, if we have a committee um, that's getting ready to judge a harp audition, for example, okay, and a most people on the committee obviously are not harpists, and some people may feel uncomfortable, like, I don't really know that much about harp, blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Right. Then the other harps in the Yorkshire can say, look, these are the excerpts that are probably going to be able to show us this variety of things. This is traditionally why some people think this excerpt is hard, or blah, 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 blah. Okay. So you have a little bit of an idea. And then after that conversation has been had, yeah. no more discussion. When people vote, they they just write down the numbers that they that the of, candidate you know, number? what candidates they want, uh-huh. they fold it up and turn it in. And then the orchestra manager and someone else to verify, go back and count and just tell people what it is. And that's the end of the story. No one uh-huh. gets a chance to say, hey, well, I disagree. It's, it's over. Yeah. So you said there's usually about, what, six people behind the screen or listening? Or is it? Or do you have like a committee already formed or... Yeah, what we do is like the first round is usually about six six people on the committee, and then the semifinal and final round is a much larger committee. Usually, we try to make it thirteen minimum. Okay. On rare occasions, we'll get it; it'll be down to eleven, and other times it might be fifteen. The only thing is that we try to make that last round um, an uneven number of people, so that yeah. you, you don't end up with ties. And, and does the music director show up, or when does when does the music director arrive? Sometimes they show up, sometimes they don't. But oh, whether yeah. whether or not they show up or not, they still only get one vote like everybody else. Just like everyone else. Yeah. Everyone gets one vote. So actually in some ways, in some ways it doesn't really encourage the music director to come because which is fine. Uh, because they know like I don't have the the power here to sway this decision. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm on equal footing with everyone else. They don't have a veto power or anything like that. Is that similar or is that completely different from other orchestras that you've been involved with? I think it's very, very different. I, yeah. I'm not sure that I know of any other orchestras, and I could be wrong, that have have a system where the music director doesn't have a weighted vote of some sort. Oftentimes, the music director will have veto authority or right. their vote is worth X percentage or something. But there aren't that many orchestras or any that I know of besides the Met where... Like, for example, I'm the second trombone player in an audition. My vote is worth just as much as the music director's vote. Yeah. I was going to ask, how long has it been that way? Because it sounds kind of progressive. Like, this whole audition process that you're describing sounds like it could be a model for the other orchestras. So I'm surprised that there hasn't been more like this. Because to me, just hearing you describe this process in great detail, it makes me feel like this is about as good a process as you could have. I mean, I think our process is a model for other orchestras and it's not new. Uh, This year, had we had a season, would have been my 16th year in the orchestra. And as far as I know from my colleagues who have been in the orchestra for, you know, 20 years more than I have, people have been there 34 years. It seems like the process has always, has always been that way. So if it wasn't that way, it was a generation much further back, probably as far back as the 60s or 70s or something. Your parents and your teachers must have been really proud of you when you won that job at 11 years old. <laughs> Congratulations. That's a real feather in, feather in your cap to win that before puberty. <laughs> I did what I could. <laughs> what about tenure? Because I we, we talked to, to Billy, uh, Billy Hunter, who was talking to us about his uh, horrible tenure uh yeah. issue you know his, his what he there. had to go through you were there yeah so uh, that's that's changed though in in more in more recent uh history than than before right 
That's true. In uh, 2018, I was on the orchestra committee. Uh, so at the Met, we just have one orchestra committee that also handles negotiations and things like that. And actually, that's now adjusted a little bit because now we have artistic advisory committee. But you know, a lot of orchestras mm -hmm. have like a, a program programming committee and a music director search committee and a this committee and that committee. The Met, we just have sure. one committee. At any rate, the, the contract agreement we came to in 2018, we updated our tenure language. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is prior to that, you know, on one end, our audition language, I think, is just the, the gold standard or as yeah. close to the gold standard as there can be. Our tenure language prior to that was definitely not. Uh, <laughs> basically, it, it said something to the effect of the shift from probationary status to non-probationary status, which is the way that our contract defined non-tenured versus tenured, okay. uh, was at the discretion of the Met. Oh. And that's very vague yeah. um, and for as long as I could remember the Met management was able to basically determine what does the Met in this say, in this case mean mm -hmm. uh, and so for all of those years like when Billy and I were going through the tenure process the Met meant that James Levine got to make the choice yeah. there was no actual structure for like a tenure review committee to give you regular feedback at certain intervals over the course of your process and tell you what you need to improve or that everything is going great or whatever. Yep. It was just, you wake up one day and you find out you either got it or you didn't, or it was extended. There was no determination. Like you, you in 16 months, you'll be given, you know, something or two years or whatever it is. It was within seven weeks of the end of the second New York season. Uh, <laughs> you will, you will be, you know, if you get past that point, then you have tenure. And wow. there's no, there was no language for communication prior to that. So it was actually kind of strange because unless they told you before that seven week period or mm -hmm. that seven week before the end of the season, you had tenure, you know, like if like yeah. I got my tenure was extended and I'm sure that Billy shared with you his story about, yeah. about tenure. Um, yeah. But that was because we had gotten a call from, the management or from, you know, our orchestra manager in conjunction with the music director saying, we want to talk about some things and this and that or whatever. But had they just forgotten to make the phone call mm -hmm. or had been too busy those couple of weeks and the calendar just passed by and they didn't tell us or notify us until five weeks before the season, just be like, sorry, we have tenure. The contract says if I'm not notified within seven weeks, then that's, that's just the end yeah. of the story. It's, it was bizarre, but now we have something that is, um, a very clear framework for the committee that listened to you on the audition, basically becoming your tenure review committee. And there being three separate intervals where people get a review and get feedback from the music director and stuff like that. And there's, yeah, there's okay. a whole process is very clear and, uh, and clearly written out. That was going to be my follow-up question. It's like, do you get feedback? Cause I, I mean, I've heard, I think orchestras are, are are changing a lot more now, but I've I've heard that yeah, a lot of orchestras. I mean, it, it even happened to me. I was in a, a small orchestra in Chattanooga Symphony, and and one day they were just like, "Oh, did did we ever tell you you got tenure?" I was like, "No, you didn't." Oh yeah, you do. You're good. But I think nowadays, I mean, you know, it's like you you want to get that feedback. You need to get that feedback because if you don't know what someone or what you're not doing that maybe you know somebody doesn't like, you you have no way of fixing it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, our process now is much, much better. It's good to have the feedback for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's, you're, you're dealing with people's livelihoods, you know, yeah, well, absolutely. They, they have, 
they deserve to to have some degree of transparency. Do you guys do like trial weeks or anything like that? Is no. that a is that a thing? No, we don't do trial weeks. We don't do section rounds. Do you see that? See, this is the model. Yeah, I, I really feel like I mean, I mean, one hundred percent. Like I know that there are a lot of you know more more and more orchestras are starting to do screens for the entire rounds. I mean, off yep. the top of my head, I mean, Dallas Symphony is one that I can think of just, just no, randomly. No, I, I can share with you that um, I was on a committee for Ixom a few years yeah. ago that was working on this, and they actually passed a resolution in 2018 that stated that blind auditions from start to finish should be considered best practice for orchestras. Yeah. And I believe at that time there were 14 Ixom orchestras that were now doing a start to finish blind audition system, mm -hmm. yeah. which... I don't know exactly what it was in 2005 when I joined the Met, but I'm sure that's a major uptick from what it was. I, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in a lot of these, the meetings now with, with, uh, with NAS, you know, the, the mm -hmm. National Alliance for Audition Support. Yeah. I mean, you were there. I mean, we, we all talked, we had, they, they, I don't know if you, were you in the, saw the, uh, they just released the um, audition and, and tenure best practice, um, yeah, uh, PDF that that came out, which ruffled a couple feathers, I think, for some orchestras. Like, how can we do this? That, you know, but it's I don't know. I, I just find that a lot of a lot of people are when you question the status quo, they get they're like, well, we've been doing this for so long. How could it be wrong? It, it could be <laughs> very much so. Um, okay, so when you're listening to an audition, I'm curious about what it is when you're on the other side of the screen when you're listening to someone play. Uh, what what are you listening for? What do, what are you specifically? What do you want to hear that would have you advance someone to the next round? This may sound a little oversimplified, but someone who doesn't make you think about all the things you think about at an audition. You know, I mean, okay. there's one thing to say like I want someone who's going to play really well in tune and really well in time and makes good phrases and all this other stuff, which is all true, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the aggregate of those things is that they add up. To a point where you actually just get to enjoy the music. Yeah. You know, for, for me, a lot of times when people don't play with good intonation or they don't play with good technique or don't play with good rhythm, that manifests itself to me as something that just distracts from my enjoyment of the music. It's like, oh, I was really into this phrase and I was right there with you until it went way sharp or until it just yeah. slowed down for no good reason. Um, so for me, that's that's the indicator. When someone plays through their excerpts, you're just like, yeah, that sounds that sounds like that tune doesn't sound like it's struggling at all. Um, I remember one year, one of my best friends came to see, I think it was Devaltura at the Met. Mm -hmm. He came in and watched. And I thought the interesting comment that he had, because the orchestra had a phenomenal night. He said, you know, the orchestra was so good. I kind of forgot that it was even there. Yeah. I just started watching the show. You know, and every once in a while, something would be so spectacular, like, oh, there's this amazing horn solo that would jump out of me and I'd go like, holy crap, what's going on now? That's so good. But otherwise, I was just able to watch the show and never be distracted by what's going on with the intonation or the rhythm or why yeah. is that person cracking? No, it's just like, I'm just able to immerse myself in the experience. And so when you're preparing for audition, I think that's what you're trying to go for is how can I, how can I eliminate all of these, these negative things so that the person who's listening to me can just enjoy Ein Heldenleben or enjoy whatever it is and not think about all this other stuff. And I think about, wow, that really is a technically difficult excerpt. <laughs> but so are you listening to different things in, in, in different rounds or is it all pretty much just, just that? I think it's all pretty much just that, you know, I mean, and 
I, from the other side of it, the uh-huh. preparation side of it and, and playing an audition, I don't believe in the idea of trying to play differently from round to round. Mm-hmm. I think the difficult thing for people is to bring that same consistently high level for multiple rounds. Yeah. <laughs> some, yeah, you know, sure. some people can do it for one round. Some people can do it for two. How many people can bring it for four rounds? And by the for, time you've gone yep. through four rounds, you have to basically play through the entire list. Can you get through the whole thing, start to finish, perhaps multiple times without slipping up too much? You know, because yeah. I've definitely heard people say, well, hey, you know, in the first round, they just want you to play clean and not make any mistakes. And then later right. they're able to hear you be more musical and all this other stuff. I I go for gusto and try to play as musically and beautifully as I can right from the start. I don't change anything. And one of the best pieces of advice I got with that was uh, from Eric Carlson, who's a second trombonist of the Philadelphia Orchestra, because I asked him that question. It's like, you know. What's the difference between the first round, the second round, and the final round? How should I play? Okay, yeah. And he says, look, he says, if you, if they voted for you in the first round, they must have liked what they heard. So just do that again. Yeah. And if they vote for it again, <laughs> then do that again. Yeah, if people are voting for what, you, what you're doing, why would you go and change that in the next round? See, great point. Weston, with the screen throughout, have I mean, you you must know a lot of players and maybe even some students that have auditioned for you. Have you been able to pick them out of a group when they're playing? No, I, I can't. You know, and I've tried to play that game with myself before. Also, um, <laughs> it, it almost never works out. It almost never works. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I bet that's so and so in there, and then it's like, no, it wasn't. You know, I mean, if you're listening to a group of four students or something who have been your students week to week then you can pick them off pretty clearly because you know who has what strengths and what weaknesses. But, you know, if you're, if you're at, a, at a major audition and say, for example, you know that someone has been auto-advanced since the semifinal round, you know they're playing really well, but they're somewhere in a group of 10 people, it's really hard to figure that out. Even if they're within a group of five, it would be really hard to, to guess who's who. Right. And you'd just be making a mistake to even, to even try. I mean, do you guys do multiple days or is it usually just one day? For the Met auditions? Yeah. They're always multiple days. They, they have to be because okay. there's, just, there's just too many candidates. Uh, we'll oftentimes have multiple days of preliminary rounds. So there mm-hmm. might be two, okay. three, in really big cases, maybe four days of prelims uh, while they listen through everybody. Yeah. And then oftentimes we'll try our best to get the semifinals and the finals on the same day. Okay. But is it, is it over like, is it, but is, but is it like in, in like in within a week, like like consecutive days? Okay. Yeah. Usually it's in the same week. I I think, for example, when I took the audition, I think the audition ran Tuesday to Friday or something. Okay. Yeah. Prelims on Tuesday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then semifinals and finals on a Friday. When you're, when you're listening to an audition, are you listening? Like if it, if it's a section player versus a principal player, is there anything you want to hear more for, from a principal player, more, uh, I don't know, melodic or whatever flowing or, or something like that? Or is it, is it, uh, you just, you want to hear the best player? I personally think you want to hear the best player. And I, I think, um, you know, everyone has to understand that when you're taking an orchestra audition, you're playing a solo recital of orchestra excerpts. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what it is, you know, and the things that the people on the other side of the screen want to hear should be, 
should be sussed out based on the repertoire they ask you to play. You know, if we're looking for mm. a first horn player, we're gonna there's a different list of things we're gonna be asking for than if we're looking for a fourth horn yeah. player. Um, and but you have to be able to play into the appropriate style for that. You know, so you're probably not gonna have a ton of lyrical solos in a second trumpet audition. You know yeah. what I mean? The repertoire yeah. just yeah. doesn't <laughs> demand that. And mm. you know, that register might require that someone or might sound better if someone has a broader, darker sound, for example, playing second, than if you're looking for someone who has to play piccolo excerpts from, you know, um, pictures at an exhibition or something. The repertoire, in a way, dictates the way that you should play. Yeah, and every excerpt, every excerpt has a has a specific thing that that they're trying to bring to the forefront. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you would say you want a principal player to be more soloistic in some way, but the repertoire that they have to play to win the audition is more soloistic in nature. What happens, when, you know, so New World Symphony, the fellows, they, they, they often say that, oh, I missed a note, so I got cut, or, you know, this happened, so I got cut. Um, that, it, that's not true, is it? No. I, I mean, in my experience, it's not true. Uh, I share with people all the time, the Met audition I remember very, very clearly being extremely upset with myself about my first round and my second round. Well, how so? What, yeah, what, what was it that you... Well, for that reason, I remember clear as day, the first round of the Met Audition, the last excerpt was the second Jermon part to Miraculous Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And it goes up to a high B at the end. And that was the high B is the penultimate note. It's, I mean, it's like a high B, then a G sharp. And the high B, I cracked as bad as a trombone player can possibly crack. I mean, it was just awful. It was, it was one of those shameful things where you want to like just hide, hide, <laughs> just hide. under the desk. Or yeah, something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, Oh yeah. man, that was really bad. And you know, I left the room thinking there's no way I'm going to advance because that's just awful. And that was, that was also the final sound that I left in the room. You know, their last yeah. impression of me is this awful, awful thing, but I advanced and apparently with a pretty wide margin of votes, um, and I think I may have had one slip up over the course of a 10 or 12 minute round like that in the, in the second round also. But okay. I mean, my experience on the other side is there's a very clear distinction for listeners. And I think almost everyone who's a, a fellow at New World Symphony would agree with this because you can't get there unless you're a good musician, that you can tell the difference between a really great player who made a mistake and someone who's just not that great, who is happens to not be missing notes or something. And if someone is playing a 10-minute round with really impeccable intonation and great phrasing and a beautiful sound and a great grasp of vibrato and style, mm-hmm. and they miss one note, it's pretty obvious right. that this person is a great player. Versus someone who's like, I had reservations about a lot of different things in their playing but they didn't make any mistakes. That's why people leave auditions like, I, I, I nailed it. I didn't miss anything. I got cut. I don't get it. It's like, it's it's usually something uh, much more broad than having made a mistake. It just goes to show also, if you if you, something like that does happen, how you how you make up for it, right? How you continue, how can you continue? And if it's not, it's not a crushing kind of, at least, at least you, it was the, the penultimate note and you could just walk off the stage. You were done. <laughs> but if it's like in the, in, you know, in, in the third excerpt or something like that, how do you recover? How do you recoup? How do you keep going? You know, I mean, you got to pull yourself together because ultimately no one's perfect. Right. And, and it's going to happen regardless of, of where you are. Yeah. I, I think I got past that by, by just, telling myself in advance before I walked out on the stage for an audition, I gave myself permission to be imperfect. 
Mm. As a brass player, you know, you always feel like you're standing behind a cannon and that something could go wrong at any moment. It's like holding a ball on a stick, you know, and if you miss, it's it's really bad. It's not like sitting in a section with 12 other people playing your parts. Like you, yeah, yeah. things can go wrong fast. Um, <laughs> but, but at any rate, you know, I mean, you're never going to be perfect, you know. And so yeah. oftentimes we define our perfection by what we would call a mistake. And even the days when you're note perfect, you don't miss anything, your articulations come out clean, you'll still listen to your recording and go like, I wish my vibrato was better there. Or I wish that I, yeah, I wow, lost a little bit of time there. There's, it's never just mm-hmm. perfect start to finish. And so I forgive myself up yeah. front. I'm like, look, I'm going to go out and do the best that I can. I'm going to play what I prepared. Some things are going to go right. And most, more likely than not, the vast majority of it's going to go right. But something in there, if we're going to go out and play for 15 minutes, Something's going to not be perfect. And 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 what is perfect? What does that even mean? Exactly. Right. That's the point. And so that for me helped reduce my sense of anxiety significantly because before I clarified that for myself, I put this pressure on myself to be perfect. And the problem with that is that the moment it's not perfect, you panic because that wasn't part of the plan. Yeah. So that first <laughs> that first audition I took, that I was telling you about, which was a Cincinnati Symphony. Uh-huh. I remember that really, really well. It was September of 2003, which would have been, which I mean, I was 21 or 20, something like that. And I had gotten one of the later rounds and I was super excited about it. It's like, this is my first ever audition and I'm, I'm cooking with grease here, man. We're advancing. Yeah. Holy crap. This could be a thing, you know? And I remember they, they gave us the list for the round and I looked at the list. And it's like, this is all my best stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. how, how lucky, you know, right. how at a certain point in your audition career, there's, there's still a couple of excerpts that you fear a little bit. And you like, hope they don't ask those at least, you know, <laughs> for me, they put down the list that I was like, this is the one I can nail all this stuff. Great. Mm-hmm. And so I went out there thinking, all right, I could actually nail this. I could really, really nail this. And the first excerpt was tuba mirror, which is straight down the pipe for most trombone players. And Cincinnati has this enormous hall. This was even before their renovation. It was huge. Mm-hmm. It was like playing in an enormous bathroom. And I played the first three bars and it sounded really beautiful. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is going to work. I was too young and immature to not be playing my own little head games. Uh-huh. Um, it's like, this is great. Here we go, man. We're about to do this thing. And I count the bar in one eighth note rest, take a breath and just completely stumble down the next line. It was just a disaster because I was distracted. And the thing was, if that were to happen today, I could recover from that almost immediately. Just go like, you know, whatever stuff happens. But I had built myself up so much to be like, this is the moment that after that happened, I, my nerves just crumbled, Uh. completely crumbled. And I remember because the next excerpt was the, uh, the organ symphony, Uh which is like a slow, low sustained thing for trombone. Mm -hmm. And my breath control was gone because my heart, oh, yeah. my heart rate was beating like 170 beats a minute or whatever and oh, so it was man. like but you know it was a learning experience sure so well, like, what do you, you, know, you shouldn't go out there thinking that anyway well how do you how do you so how do you cope after something like that because you you've I mean, you're, you're right there you're just I mean and then so this happens and when you're done with that it's I mean, is it crushing? Was it, was it just like, I mean, how do you, how do you, ha- how do you handle like something like that? I'll tell you how I handle it. And then you'll, you'll think it's funny. So at the, at the time, Anthony McGill was in the Cincinnati symphony and okay. I had met him the year before at Sphinx uh-huh. and 
And he was nice enough to pick me up at the airport and let me stay at his house while I was auditioning. And so, you know, he dropped me off at the hall, all this other stuff. So, you know, I called him and I was like, hey, man, I'm done. Didn't work out, whatever. Okay, I'll come pick you up. But don't worry about it, man. You did a good job. I'm proud of you. And so I was kind of in that mode. Uh, okay. Went back to his house. We were playing some video games. And I had I had called my mom and left her a message. like, call me back. You know, I'm done with the audition. So we're Anthony and I are in the middle of playing video games. <laughs> and my mom calls me back. So I'm like, hold on, Anthony. We'll hit pause. And I put my mom on speakerphone. And she says, so, so what happened at this audition? And I said, you know, I mean... It went pretty well, you know, for the most part, but I got really nervous in the last round and I didn't play my best and it didn't work out, you know, but I mean, it was my first audition ever took. So I guess it's pretty good that I made it this far. And, yeah. and she said, so you said, you said you got, you didn't play your best in the last round. I said, nah, I mean, I, I, I made this mistake and then I just kind of, you know, folded and just, so I just didn't play my best. She's like, huh, I thought the last round, that's, that's when you're supposed to play your best, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and i remember i'll never forget anthony looked at me and he went oh man my man your mom is tough yeah the love of a mother right <laughs> so i mean i know that's like a roundabout answer but that's how i dealt with that one it's kind of interesting that she said that because so when you when you are in the last round and you get there this is your time to shine really because you've gotten through the first round they want to hear you again okay so let's do it again so you go out there, you do it again. Now you're, I mean, was it the third round, I'm assuming, or maybe fourth or something? But, you know, so you're you're in the third round, you're in the final round. There's, you know, now it's your time to really, like, let me give them everything I have, you know, show them what, I, what I'm made of. I think what you want to show in an audition is what you prepared. Yeah. You know, I think, I think we get in trouble, or at least I get in trouble when you think, all right, now I'm going to play the best I've ever played. Yeah. Or okay. Yeah. Let's just try not to do the worst I've ever played. My, my <laughs> thing is let's play what we prepared. And yeah. I think considering how high pressure these moments are, it's very difficult for a lot of people to just actually go out and present what they actually prepared. A lot of mm -hmm. people, when they go on stage, they don't, they don't actually bring the level that they had in the practice room and that they had in their normal situation. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of like mental strength to actually just convey your product in a moment that's that high pressure. So it's it's control. You gotta have you gotta have control. Control is is one way of describing it. I think another way of describing it is peace. Okay. Yeah. You have to have some peace, you know, so that you can just go out and do your thing. I I bet if you ask the vast majority of people who take major auditions, do you feel like the way you played that audition is really reflective of the way that you generally play? Uh -huh. Most people would be like, I think a large percentage of people would say they lose something in that space, that anxiety and a lack of peace takes away something. And you can hear that when you're on the other side of the screen. You can hear when people are nervous. You can hear when people are, are shaking their tone. And there are not that many people, I think, that show up in that high pressure situation, just play with their normal confidence as though no one was watching. I mean, it's really hard to be in a situation like that and just be yourself. And just yeah, play the way is. you are. Um, and if you're one of the people who can do that consistently and you have a high level, that right there puts you in that top group. Because if there are 100 mm -hmm. people at an audition, 80 or 90 of them are going to shake at some point or, or lose something because of anxiety in that moment. 
you know, and that's that's probably why such a large percentage of people are taking Enderol and Proponol before they go to auditions, simply so they can yeah. have the opportunity to try to do something that's reflective of what they actually do and not have their product be completely compromised by the anxiety. So, so for me, I remember, I think the final round that I played at the Met was one of the best final rounds I ever played, but it wasn't because... It wasn't because I went out there and was thinking, now I'm going to play the best I've ever played and I got to go for it and do everything. I, I remember I, I came to a certain place of mental peace and clarity. And I remember it like it was yesterday. The orchestra manager knocked on my door and it's like, you know, at the door of the practice room and said, it's time to go downstairs. You're going to be on deck. You're the next person, whatever. And the last thing I said to myself before I went on out to play was, you know, just, just play the way you play. Yeah. Um, and life this is not the end of the world. You know, the sun's going to come up if you don't win. The sun will come up if yep. you do win. Yep. And when this is over, because at the time I was living in Philadelphia, it's like, you know what? No matter what happens after this audition is over, I'm going to get on the train. I'm going to go back to Philadelphia. And when I go to my apartment, the lights are going to come on and there's going to be food in the refrigerator. And that's a lot more than a whole lot of people in the world can say. And that's cool. So just go yeah. play. You know, and that actually put me in a place to just play. Nice. Yeah. And the end result of that was a really good result. Clearly. It, because I was in that headspace. Are you a, a, a proponent of, of Enderol or do you think it, it there's on one side or the other? Do you feel that it's, it's a hindrance or it's a help? It's different for everybody. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I took Enderol uh, through mm -hmm. a fair number of auditions. I think it's something that if you feel like there's an, a chance that the moment may be too big for you. Mm-hmm that's actually the wrong way to say it, but you know what I'm saying? If you think that this is a, a moment where the stakes are so high, you've built it up so much in your own mind that your, your nerves could compromise you. I don't have a problem with taking it. What, what I have a problem with, or I think is an unhealthy way to do it is if people are taking it for basically every performance Everything. they have to do. Like I know people like every time they get ready to play an orchestra concert, every, every time they have a solo in an orchestra concert, they have to take enderol because they're, they're panicked. I don't think that's healthy. You know, so I remember going to the going to the doctor when I was in college, and I think he gave me a, a thing of 10, 10 milligram pills yeah. Yeah. of Enderol. And I think five years later, I still had two or three of them left. Right. Yeah. You know, I tried to train myself. There were a few moments where I was like, this is a big, big deal. And, you know, I, I might panic here. And then, and so I, so I would take it and I would practice maybe a week or two before by taking one or something like that, because yeah. you have to, you have to practice the, sometimes you can take too much and it too will much. make you yep. too numb. You yep. know, you're, you're a little bit dull to everything. So there's like a sweet mm -hmm. spot. I actually found myself taking only five milligrams. I thought, felt that put me in a place where I wasn't completely zoned yeah. out, was, you know, cause there's a certain level just the slightest hint of anxiety that's actually good. You know, it's also just an sure, indicator yeah. that you're doing something you care about. I kind of like that. Like I, I am present. Yep. I am human. Um, but, and then I also got to a point later in life where I was, I remember there was a year where I did like 15 recitals, solo recitals in a year. And I think mm -hmm. that was the year I broke myself off of Enderol completely because yeah. <laughs> I would have these periods where I was playing like the same recital three or four days in a row in you know, a different university or something. And I'd be like, you know what? Just as a personal experiment, let's take Enderol for this cycle, not for the next one, not for the next one, yes for the next one. Just see like how my body reacts and get accustomed to that. And after a while, I think once you're in a position where you're in a certain environment enough, you don't need anymore. You know, the audition environment is so unique. No one is taking auditions 100 times a year. You know, so if especially if someone hasn't taken an audition in five years or you're only taking three a year or something, then you feel yeah. like you're in an unusual space, but playing concerts or playing recitals, 
hopefully you're doing that enough that you can develop your own rhythm with that and you can just be yourself and do it. Yeah. One of the yeah. reasons I even was interested in doing this podcast with JT was to talk about the performance anxiety aspect of auditions and performing for that matter. I didn't want to ask the question that JT asked, but I do appreciate you being so candid about that with us because I still feel like it's a taboo subject, unhealthily taboo, I think. And I, I do agree with what you said in the sense that no one is experienced enough at auditions to conquer your nerves in that final moment of playing. Like that's, that's a very unique situation. And I wouldn't blame anyone for any sort of help that you would need to conquer that because it is a physical thing. And if you're, I mean, I used to think it was only wind players that you would be able to hear the, the shaking and the quaking in your tone, but string players have it too. They can't hit their, oh, sure. The harmonics. If your hands are shaking a little bit and the vibrato's off and... Oh, the bow shakes. I mean, it's just a whole, yeah. Like you said, you're not able to present who you are as a musician if you're if you can't control your sweating and your breathing and your your tremors. If you were to do a field scan of auditioners and people were to be completely honest with you, I would bet the majority of people are using Enderol. I, I would I would agree with that, but I I would say that the majority are, but only a small percentage need it. At, truthfully, actually, physically need it. Because I, I don't, I mean, I do think that it becomes, uh, I think people take it because they think that's what they have to do versus trying it, seeing if they, if they do have a, a um, if they do have shakes, if they do have the nerves that are, that are preventing them from, from playing at their, at the, the best that they can be, then okay, then that's fine. But see if you can do it and, and try not to do it you know, or, or to take it if you don't need it. Right. My, uh, my wife's, um, father, uh, violinist, um, former violinist, he, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was in the Rhode Island, Rhode Island Philharmonic for years and years and years. So he had severe stage fright to the point where he mm -hmm. told me once that he would walk out on stage well before anyone else and, and go in and sit in his chair and wrap his feet around the legs of the chair because he would always be so nervous he felt like he would he would fall off the chair. So wow. that's a candidate for <laughs> for for Enderall, sure. right? At a certain level, the differences are so are so small that it's not just a matter of being able to get through it without flopping. It's a matter of being able mm -hmm. to get through it and really set yourself apart from a, a very competitive field, which yeah. is a different thing. I know we're we're in the pandemic. I, I you know you the Metropolitan Opera is is um, as we've all read not doing so great. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I mean I think everyone listening and everyone out there really feels for what you guys are going through. What what do you guys have? Do you do you have any news? Do you have any plans or what's what's going to happen? What's what's the future look like? To be determined. Um, mm -hmm. I I can't really speak for it. I know that our committee is working really hard on our behalf all the time to see that we can come to some type of agreement where the musicians can continue to be paid and to be compensated in a way that's actually reflective of the amount of work that we're generally expected to do and the quality mm -hmm. of our orchestra, you know, which is one of the world's absolute great orchestras and we 100 we have to be compensate have to be compensated appropriately in order to maintain that uh but i can't really speak to the details of it not not only because i want to be private about it but i'm not on that orchestra committee anymore i, I did do mm -hmm. seven years on the orchestra committee and i was on i was there for two negotiations the last two in 2014 and 2018 but 
as things are currently constructed, I don't have I don't have the details on it. Yeah. So I'm just hoping for the best. I mean, of course, our whole season has been canceled, and the Met has announced a full season for this upcoming year, which I think was started at the end of September. And I'm hopeful that that will happen because it really would be nice to get back to to making music. But I I really yeah. don't have much more than that. Sure. So um, speaking about auditions, you did the the audition intensive. The first one, the online one, did, were you part of that? I can't remember. I'm sorry if I did that. Yes, I did do that. So our our thought was when we were kind of thinking about doing this, like putting it together, how this, you know, having online, having or, or, or virtual auditions, like just prelims, you know, only. I guess. I mean, we would live for semis and finals. How that could actually have more, uh, give more access to people to take auditions. All over the world, like as as we talked about, you know, you 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 were in Philly. You had to fly to Seattle twice. That's expensive. Yep. Think about a cellist who's got or a bass. You know, you you got a, a cellist. You got to buy two seats. seats or whatever. You know. So, do you think? I mean, we've been doing this at 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 New World, um, where we're doing mock audition. We're doing like we have um, audition training seminars where it's a three day thing, and you know that we 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 we. we really focus it to be like a real life audition. Well, obviously we couldn't do that this year. So we did, we, we bought the fellows, all, all of our fellows, like microphones for them. They, they were able to, we, we reimbursed them for, for whatever and headphones, you know, good equipment so that they could actually present themselves at the highest level online. Right. So, so my question is, do you think that that is moving forward? That would be a possibility for to give more access to people in order to to at least get through that first round that you're listening to and in 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 a met way you know this this person i think this person has an opportunity to 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 play again or you know write their name down write their their number down is that something that that is has been discussed in the matter i mean i don't even know if in, in other orchestras or have you heard of that yeah I, I have heard of it i mean my understanding is that the New York Philharmonic does something similar to that already, that you have mm -hmm. an option to play. I think they've done yeah. this for some auditions. They have the option to play a recorded first round, and they yeah. give you what that list is. And if you pass through that, then they'll have you come to the semifinals. And that's saving everybody time and money. I think the Met would probably say that they do something similar to that already, because um, we have a very clear, very clear set of rules for who gets invited to audition and who does not. But mm -hmm. we don't we don't deny anyone the opportunity to audition. So if you are a member of an Ixam orchestra or have advanced in an audition for an Ixam orchestra, you are invited to a live audition. And if you have not, then you make a recording. And so you'll have one pool of candidates who have been invited, then you have another candidate often, that's oftentimes a much, much larger pool of say 60 or 70 people who submit a recording. And if, mm -hmm. if you pass that round, which that screened round has the same rules as our first round, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a small panel listens, do you think this person is worthy of being considered vote for as many people as you want? If they pass it, they're invited to the live round. Now, I suppose you could take that one step further and say, you know, all those people who are invited, we're going to make all of them do a screen thing. And then we can just start the semifinals with, with people. And instead of having a yeah. hundred people show up to New York, you could start with 15 or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's, out of, I don't think that's completely out of the question either. It would save, save a lot of time and a lot of money for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I that's what, I mean, that's kind of, that's my, my thought. And again, I think it is about access. It is about people that, that, 
maybe just can't afford to get to New York, can't afford the plane ticket, can't afford the hotel. They don't have anybody that they crash on the couch with or something like that, you know? And I was, we, we talked, uh, recently to uh, Brinton Smith, who is, who is the principal uh, cellist of Houston. And we were, we were actually talking about this. And he, he had a fascinating idea about, like, what if, you know, so you want everybody to have the same quality, you know, because that's, that's one of the concerns, is that not, not, not everybody's going to have a good mic or not everybody's going to have the, the quality. But what if you had your local had a good mic, had a good setup, and anyone that wanted to take an audition for a specific place could go to their local and make that recording there. It would be monitored by a union rep. They send in the recording that way. They know that there's no editing or anything like that. And and I thought, you know, when he was telling me this, I was like, that's that's genius. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's a really it's, good it's, idea. It's a good idea. Yeah, it's a really really good idea. I mean, we're talking about union orchestras that are all you know the memberships are the members are part of the AFM. Uh, for the vast majority of orchestras, only a couple of exceptions, and right. You know, but I will say with regards to the, the recording quality question, I recognize that having a high quality mic can be an equity issue for some people. Um, but for the vast majority of tapes that you would listen to or recordings or whatever, I, I call them yeah. tapes because I'm, I'm old. Right. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, for the vast majority of recordings that you would listen to, with rare exceptions, recording quality is not the deciding factor. Yeah. You know, if you're listening for, does this person play with good phrasing, good pitch, good rhythm, things like that? I mean, I think most people are open to the idea, well, this person is playing with a really phenomenal studio setup and this person is not. But you're really just trying to see, does someone have all of those those fundamental things intact enough that it's worth hearing more in That's a live setting? So, I mean, I imagine that I'm talking to you right now on this Blue Yeti microphone that you can get for $175, which, yeah, you exactly. know. And I've even recorded stuff on the Blue Snowball mic, which is 50 bucks. You know, you can make a recording on that equipment with a basic laptop that would be good enough to get you through the taped round of any major audition, any, assuming yep. that you, you play well enough. There are far less barriers to making a good recording now than there used to be even 10 years ago and way more than 20 years ago. And it, like, like you say, it's a lot of times it's not even so much about the equipment, though. It, it used to be about the technique of recording your instrument and having the mic placed maybe too far away. So you're getting like a, you're not getting a great representation of your sound because the mic is too far away or if it's too close and you're distorting the capsule of the microphone, those things can ruin, you know, an otherwise good performance. Mm -hmm. But now you don't really have that as much with the USB microphones. They kind of set them and forget them. And I mean, heck, I told JT to buy that microphone. That was less than a hundred bucks. Yeah. And when was, I hear him like on it and bucks. I hear myself on it and my, you know, quintuple the amount of money uh, for my setup, we don't really sound any different. So like you're saying, the, the gear is not really the, the issue anymore. Yeah. So I was um, actually excited by Brenton's idea about that. I think that would allow a lot more access to auditions for, for people. Agreed. Look, Wesson, I uh, I know I know you got a lot of stuff going on, and I don't want to keep you any longer. But I wanted to thank you for being here. I've got a lot more questions, so we'll um, I'm be sure to have you back because I hear you're you're a, you're a big basketball fan. So I want to talk to you about that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am a big basketball fan. Yes, I, I watch I watch a lot, and I used to play. 
not so much anymore because you know yeah. catching an elbow to the chops isn't really good not for the best yeah for making money just stay on the outside man just, just shoot the three you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> that's largely that's largely what i did yeah uh yeah but are you, are you into basketball yourself no, i love basketball yeah I, I was sharing a story with a, with a colleague of mine today i can't remember what the context was but i'm six foot two probably in the 190s mm-hmm. right uh, so when I step on a basketball court, I'm not the biggest guy, especially if you're playing like real competitive basketball. Yeah, I was going to say, um, where are you playing? Yeah. Because <laughs> where, where, I'm, where I'm playing, you're the biggest guy. <laughs> no, like the leagues I played in. I, I remember when I was in high school, I was I was the shortest, maybe the oh second shortest guy in the team at 6'2". I was the tallest you know, was, in my team, so that that's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to 5A Texas high school. But oh, no, yeah. I just we were talking about... Um, people who can be intimidating in their stature. And it reminded me of when I was in college over summer, I would go home sometimes and play in a summer league that my dad was also playing in. And Jake Reed, who was um, a wide receiver, all pro wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings back in the day. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever watched them, but he was It's like Chris Carter was on one side and Jake Reed was on the other side. And they were these two superstar yeah. NFL wide receivers, but he played on our team also because he went to our church. And <laughs> I, I remember we had a game, I was playing point guard and I probably scored eight of the first 10 points or something like that. And this other team was getting really frustrated about that. And I went down the lane and mm-hmm. I went up for a layup guy, fouled me really, really hard, hit the floor. Okay, fine. They're, they're trying to teach me a lesson here. Um, next time the guy comes down the court, he tries to, I pick him up full court on defense. He tries to cross over at half court. Yeah. I steal the ball. And I'm racing down the court for a fast break layup. And um, I, I go up and a guy comes out of nowhere and just shoves me. It doesn't even make a play oh, on the man. ball. And I remember laying there on the floor and hearing Jake, who has this like really thunderous baritone voice. He's like six foot four, uh-huh. 240, looks like he's made of steel, you know. Yeah. It, and I just heard his voice say, oh, you guys want to play rough? I like playing rough. Let's go. <laughs> oh man. Like, and, and, and like the, the, the stature of this guy, it was, yeah. like, it was like, Oh man. Cause I've never seen so many scared people on one court <laughs> at one time, it, you know, and I'm like an amateur athlete, but this guy was like, you know, yeah, a real world class NFL yep. athlete, you know, uh-huh. when he stands up and announces his presence, it was like, Oh crap. Uh, but <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget that moment. It's like, I'm glad that guy's on my team. My team, yeah. They were playing with fire. They had to know that might have been in the cards. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. That's hilarious. Anyway, completely yeah. random story. But no, yeah, I love man, it. Basketball that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, Wes, and again, thank you for, for being here. Thanks for, for sharing uh, your story with us. And, and uh, like uh, everybody, if you want to go check out Wes and go to westensprot.com. You got anything else you got on, on online that you wanna you wanna plug? Not in particular. Hit hit YouTube, right. <laughs> type me in, you'll find some videos, things like yeah. that. You know, I've, I recently um I recently did a, a performance of the Larson Concertino where for trombone and strings with the Bard College Conservatory Orchestra. We did that in November, it got nice. released on YouTube. I think that's kind of interesting because it's it's definitely like a masked trombonist pandemic concerto because I'm I'm playing with the player's mask and the bell cover. So uh, oh, to wow. the brass players who complain that they have to play with it, it can be done. Um, <laughs> and sometime in the coming weeks, there should be a couple of videos coming out because I recorded 
a couple of solos with the U.S. Navy Band in D.C. back in November that haven't been released yet. But I did the Will and Grant Still Romance that was arranged for trombone and band. Cool. And also a piece called Mr. Trombonology by a composer, another African-American composer named Nathaniel Davis, who is actually a contemporary of Henry Fillmore. Uh, <laughs> and grew up in Tennessee, trombonist, and fought for the United States in World War One, and wrote a whole bunch of pieces that are in a similar style that have lots of glisses and, you know, cool effects. Nice, yeah. Uh, this kind of celebratory music that was that was never really played or recorded. So I got the opportunity to uh, to record one of his one of his works and hopefully that'll be showing up on the web sometime soon. Very cool. I appreciate you taking all this time. I know we've we've been talking for for quite some time. So thank you for uh, for spending this time with us. Um, and again, yeah, we'll we'll come. I want to hear some more basketball stories next time you're on. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me. It's fun to do. All right, Wesson, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you all for listening to Behind the Screen. Don't forget to share this uh, with your friends and uh, oh, and send us send us an email too. What screen is up at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from anyone who they want to see on the show. Let me know.